State Representative Phil Cristofanelli is in his third year in the Missouri House, and the St. Charles County Republican is dealing with some big issues, such as whether to institute an internet sales tax. Cristofanelli joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the 2019 session. So let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, joining us as our special guest today, all the way from beautiful St. Charles County, Phil Cristofanelli, State Representative, 105th District. The first time on the show? This is my first. Yeah, this is going to be a, a scary time for you. You're, you're, <laughs> you're going to be pummeled with, with horrible questions, uh, only partially kidding there. Um, before we start on the issues, for, for first-time guests, we always ask them what their district encompasses and also to give a little bit of a biographical sense of themselves. So the first question is, what, what, what is in your district and sure. what, what cities, what's the boundaries? So I have central eastern St. Charles County. So I have the eastern portion of the city of St. Peter's. And then I have some unincorporated St. Charles County, County south of the Page Extension, which includes Harvester and Heritage neighborhoods. So how did you get involved in Missouri politics? I, I think from reading your bio... Um, you, I think you went to school at Washington University. Is that correct? That's right. I went to WashU, got a political science degree, and I started getting involved in Missouri politics when I was in college. Um, while I was still in college, I ran for the Missouri Republican State Committee, uh, and I, I won a state committee seat uh, when I was about 21 years old. And I stayed involved in uh, Missouri politics in the form of campaigning and uh, helping people run for office for about 10 years. Uh, now, I did leave in between... Uh, running for office and uh, being on the state committee to work in Washington, D.C. I was a press secretary for a member of Congress for three or four years. Which one? I worked for Representative Dan Beneshek, who has since retired. He was uh, northern Michigan's uh, congressman and came in on the Tea Party wave, uh, term-limited himself, and and then went back home. Did he represent the Upper Peninsula? He did. I I had to spend uh, many a, a chilly election season uh, up in the Upper Peninsula trying to help him win his targeted swing seat. I, I always wondered if people actually lived there or whether it was just a place where people had vacation homes or probably a, probably a combination of both. Uh, yeah, there are a number of people that live there, believe it or not. Um, it is extremely cold. And uh, it's weird. They're, they're kind of a, a strange – there's a Finnish population, and they have this strange combination of a Canadian and Finnish accent. Uh, and you get to learn that pretty well while you're up there. They call them youpers. Oh, my gosh. I'm from suburban Chicago. Aren't you originally from Illinois, by I the did way? grew up in central Illinois, no, yeah. So uh-huh. so you you probably think the uh, Chicago part of Illinois or even the Chicago suburbs of Illinois is just the worst place in the world. <laughs> That's kind of my sense that uh, – Downstate Illinois people view Chicago with disdain. Is yeah, there was a lot of animosity there. My dad was actually from South Chicago, and so I was up there quite a bit when I was a kid. 
like uh, the south side of Chicago? That's right. Chicago Heights is where yeah. all the Italian immigrants lived yeah. in the Chicago area uh, for quite some time, and that's where my dad grew up. My, my wife is actually from the southwest side of Chicago. And a funny story, actually, when we first met, I tried to claim I was from the actual city of Chicago, and she was like, no, you're not. <laughs> and she was right, because I'm from uh, Buffalo Grove. Uh, but enough about our bios. I want to talk about a few issues today. Sure. A couple that we haven't really talked a lot about on the show. One of the guest committees that you're on is a committee dealing with the possibility of internet sales tax. Is that correct, first of all? Yeah, that's right. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee, and we did create a subcommittee to specifically look at um, the Wayfair decision and how we might implement that in the state of Missouri. Explain what that is, because I think that's shorthand for a Supreme Court case that has had a lot of reverberations in state governmental policy. Explain what it is. Absolutely. The Wayfair decision came down, I want to say, last year, and it dealt with uh, the state of South Dakota. And South Dakota wanted to uh, collect sales tax from out-of-state vendors that were selling products into their state. Uh, Traditionally, you had to have an economic nexus in the state in order to collect those sales taxes. But um, they took it all the way up to the Supreme Court and said, the Supreme Court said that um, you do not have to have an economic nexus anymore. And what is an economic nexus? When I think of nexus, I think of the pro wrestling stable <laughs> that was uh, was around in 2010. But what is it in, in relation to this sure, issue? It is some brick and mortar building. So for instance, um, We were collecting sales tax on Amazon and Walmart in the state of Missouri, uh, even though they are headquartered outside of the United States and they were selling uh, online products into Missouri because they had a number of brick-and-mortar stores and Amazon had distribution centers. So they had an economic nexus in the state of Missouri, and we were able to collect our sales tax because of that. Now we don't need that anymore, but we still do have to pass a law that would allow us to collect those taxes on Uh, entities that don't have that economic nexus. Is there any estimate, let's say they end up passing a law that allows for the collection of sales tax, is there any estimate on how much revenue would A, go to Missouri and B, go to local communities? Sure. And that is um, a very, it's, it's dependent on how we implement that sales tax law. And that is a lot of the part of the debate uh, that we have been engaging in in the subcommittee because there are proposals that would uh, result in more money for the state. There are proposals that would result in more money for the localities. uh, And it depends on how you implement them. Uh, But uh, the bottom line estimate for the state of Missouri's cut will probably be 50 uh, 50 to $100 million. A year. A year. And then I guess the localities would I guess it would depend on how much high their sales tax is, right? Yes. So um, a, a topic that, that you know I love to discuss is the proliferation of special taxing districts across the state of Missouri. Uh, that was one of the things that I passed in my first couple of years is the, the tax map that would track all of these special taxing districts. Mm-hmm. And if you do, in fact, have a number of these districts and it's pushing your sales tax rates at the local level up pretty high, Um, If we did something like a streamlined sales tax uh, where the vendors would appropriate all the money to those those special taxing districts, then um, the places like Kansas City and St. Louis that have a lot of them would be getting more of that money than if we just did a flat sales tax across the state of Missouri. So I sense from talking with some other legislators on the Republican side that there's kind of two mindsets, not only with this, but also like video slot machines and also sports betting. Some people want to take the revenue from that and actually use it for 
programs and services. Others want to basically cut taxes and essentially use this money as a means to fill in the gap when they cut taxes. As somebody who's followed you for a while, I think you're more in of the mindset of of B than A. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's definitely fair. And, you know, the, the sports betting and video lottery is a little different than the sales tax mm-hmm. increase. Uh, those are those are new programs, uh, and they're more of like a luxury tax that, that we would put upon uh, gambling, essentially. But with the sales tax, if we were just to pass the uh, internet sales tax, what we would be doing is, is a 50 to $100 million tax increase. And that's really not why I ran for office. Um, I think it's, there's a lot of reasons why we may do the internet sales tax. It brings parity between the brick and mortar businesses and the folks that are shopping online, and you want that to be a fair and level playing field. But I'm, I'm not interested in imposing a new uh, multi-million dollar tax on Missouri residents. So this is a clip that I, I have from December 2018 from Governor Mike Parson. It was kind of a discussion of his workforce development agenda, and then more specifically, the expansion of the state funding into pre-K or early childhood education. It, the reason I'm bringing this up is he mentions internet sales tax and the Wayfair decision in this particular soundbite. It, could it possibly be like raising cigarette taxes or something? It would probably yeah, require a statewide yeah. vote or something like that. But what, what, how about yeah. cigarette tax increase for early childhood education? You, you know what? I think you put everything on the table that's out there possibly. I mean, you got the Wayfair Act that's coming up pretty quickly. That's a stream of revenue. And you know how it's going to be. Everybody's going to want a piece of that. But And that's internet taxes, by right, the way. Right. Internet taxes on that exactly is what it is. And that's really a tax that's just making it fair for Missouri businesses, you know, to be able to collect that. But I'll go back to it. Uh, to, to the early childhood development side of it, we got to figure out a solution for that because that, that's if you really want to change society uh, uh, for for a lot of people, then it's going to be with the kids side of it. I mean, you know, we just can't keep uh, trying to fix problems with people that uh, you know, frankly, that's sixty years old. I just don't think you're going to change much there. I, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that fifty to a hundred million dollars is not going to be enough money to significantly impact expansion of pre-K throughout the state. That probably is going to be a drop in the bucket. But well, what do you think of the governor's statement that may be part of, the sol- part of the funding source for that particular program? Well, you know, it sounded like he just listed a number of, of potential funding sources. And there's been a lot of speculation as to what that Wayfair money could go to. Uh, but my inclination is looking at, um, you know, the conservative caucus in the state Senate and where the general population of the House is, um, I would say that there's probably not going to be a passage of Wayfair if it is not automatically paired with income tax cuts. And and it would have to be income tax cuts, I would think, because I'm not really sure what else you could cut. You could cut the state sales tax you could. if you were so inclined. But uh, I think there's a general philosophy among uh, conservatives in, in the legislature that we need to move away from a uh, production-based tax system and move towards a consumption-based. Is there any sense of like whether there's actually going to be movement on on the Wayfair decision, internet sales tax this year, or do you think this might be like a two-year debate and this might be a next-year thing? You know, um, I think that there is certainly a possibility we get it done this year. Uh, it's one of the, the top-line uh, ticket items that has been talked about by uh, leadership in, in all sides. So I, I think that 
it it could get done, but I, I never underestimate the ability of the General Assembly to not deliver on a policy priority. So let's talk about a couple of educational issues that you're involved in. Not only are you involved with the Ways and Means Committee and that subcommittee that we just talked about, but you're also, I think, part of the early, not the, the uh, elementary, elementary and secondary yeah. education yeah. committee. And uh, one of the bills that you have sponsored that I would assume would go through that committee is education savings accounts. That's right. So tell me what that actually is, because this is something that got brought up a couple of years ago. I think that actually former Governor Greitens mentioned it. Obviously, Governor Greitens is no longer there, sure. but but I think that the there's still some appetite for the idea. So just explain what it what it absolutely would do. and and not only would it go there, it already has, uh, and it's come out of education and is in rules. Will come out of rules later today. Uh, and uh, what an education savings account or empowerment scholarship, as uh, my bill calls them, it's a program that exists currently in thirty state thirty four states uh, across the country, and it is a grant to a student. Uh, who's struggling in their given school environment uh, that their parent can use to go out and find them an alternative education solution. And so uh, it's uh, these, the way my bill is structured is that there's going to be education assistance organizations, which are private groups that will go out and collect donations uh, up to $50 million from across the state of Missouri. And uh, they would use that to offer the scholarships up to $6,200, which is the state adequacy target. Uh, and then for those donations, the donors would be able to claim 100% refundable tax credit from the state up to 50% of their overall tax liability. Hmm. And so um, the parent uh, who receives a scholarship could use that for private school tuition. They could use it for tutoring. They could use it for extracurricular support. Uh, they could use it for supplies, whatever it takes to get that kid the education that we have promised them as a state. Uh, that's what the purpose of these empowerment scholarships are. Is is there any like limit to the income level that you would need to qualify for this, or could anybody qualify for this? You know, uh, states have implemented these programs in a in a variety of ways across the country. Some of them do have like a means testing, if you will. Uh, my bill currently does not have that, uh, but as this moves through the legislative process, I imagine there are a number of compromises that would be made. That very well could be one of them. My, I think there are a number of circumstances where uh, there could be a kid whose family uh, is not necessarily impoverished, but they, they can't afford private school tuition, uh, and that could, kid may, may benefit from accessing a, a different type of school. And so I don't want to necessarily exclude anyone. Uh, so my bill is, is as open as it could possibly be. But um, whatever it takes to help get these scholarships to kids, um, I'm willing to compromise. So I, I wasn't at the committee hearing that you mentioned, but I did notice that it passed. I think I don't know if there was any opposition to it as far as like people voting on it. Right. But there uh, was but there was opposition to the idea because I would assume that public schools and school administrators see this as siphoning money away from public schools to private schools. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that would probably be the most generous uh, description of, of their opposition. Now, the bill did go 8-6, um, and so even two Republicans uh, voted against education savings accounts. As you know, um, education and education choice is a very divisive issue even within the Republican caucus with many rural legislators tending to side with the status quo school status. You know what I think I did? I think that I might have seen a zero where I saw a six. <laughs> I, think, I think I was just tired when I looked at it, but, but continue. Sure. Uh, I, wish it, I wish it was unanimous, but um, 
you know, this is going to be an uphill uh, battle. Education reform in the Missouri House and Senate has always been an uphill battle. But I know it's something that's really important to our speaker, Elijah Har. He was homeschooled. Uh, and I know that there are a number of champions in the Senate, like Senator Koenig and Senator Eigel, uh, that are willing to make this a priority. So I think we can get something done this year. Is it? Yeah, I think you kind of hit on why this has not moved forward, even with almost, what are we at now, 15, 16 years of Republican control. That's right. I, I think that a lot of rural legislators are probably getting pressure from uh, their superintendents or even maybe their constituents because Again, kind of what I said before, they see this as siphoning away money from public schools. Is that what you're hearing from some of your rural colleagues or is it something else altogether? You know, I, I hear that this, that their local superintendents don't like it. And, you know, we could go into depth about how the structure of our education system empowers these superintendents in uh, rural communities. We have 530 school districts. Each of them has a superintendent that has an extreme amount of access to jobs and opportunity in their community, and they become little power brokers. And so uh, there's a lot of representatives that don't want to get on the wrong side of their superintendents back home, and these guys have been very effective at killing education reform over the last two decades, as you mentioned. Um, one of the things, when we had uh, Representative Dottie Bailey on the show, we talked about something different, kind of scholarships for special needs kids. But I think one of the questions that I posed to her is, let's say you take advantage of one of these education savings accounts, but you are not wealthy and you don't have a car and you don't really have the ability to transport your child to a private school. Would transportation costs be included in some of this? Because I feel like they may not seem like an issue, but it seems like a logistical problem sure. to actually get your child to another school. What, what yeah. about that issue? And so uh, across the country, some, some bills do include transportation costs. Other bills uh, do not. Uh, I would be inclined to include transportation in uh, my bill because I think it's a critical issue. Uh, if you can't get your kid to the alternative school, it doesn't matter if you can afford to go there or not. Uh, and so right now, it does not explicitly say that you could use them for transportation, but that's something that I'm totally open to. But the, the maximum that you could get is $6,200. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's okay. the state acquisition target. Yeah. Okay. But I think a lot of private schools cost a lot more than $6,200, right? You know, um, the high schools in the St. Louis area most certainly do. But the K-12 through schools, you'll find that $6,200 is, is actually more than sufficient mm -hmm. to get your kid into a private K-8 through school uh, throughout most of the state of Missouri. So let's shift to another issue that has, has uh, enlisted no opposition or debate, and that's the expansion of charter schools. <laughs> there, was a, there was legislation that also went through the committee that you were on that would do a number of things um, regarding charter schools. Just explain some of the big points before we, we talk about uh, the debate over it. So uh, right now we only have charter schools in a very narrow portion of St. Louis and Kansas City. Uh, and typically you have to be in an area with an unaccredited school district, uh, and then there has to be a level of um, parental support and sponsorship in order to make those charter schools. So this would expand charter schools a little farther. Uh, I think um, in Representative Raber's bill, the, the limits right now are any city of greater than 30,000 and any uh, first-class charter county. So that would be the big ones like St. Charles and uh, St. Louis County and Jackson County. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Uh, 
charter school expansion provides powers parents with an opportunity if they don't feel their school district and their local school is serving their kids' needs. They can form together, and if they can get 500 people to say we need a new school, they can form a charter. That charter will have a board that governs the school, uh, and that board would be independent of the local school authority and provide parents with an alternative choice to give kids the education they deserve. I think one of the other aspects of the bill is that if a charter school wants to buy a building in a school district and the school board rejects them, they can go to the Missouri Charter School Association? So, yeah, there's, there's kind of two things going on there. So, yes, um, the, the local school board can certainly sponsor a charter school if they're so inclined, but if they reject the, the charter school, they can go to the um, charter commission or another sponsor in order to sponsor the charter. Uh, but uh, there's another thing going on in the city of St. Louis, and we included this in the bill. I was going to file a, an independent bill on it, but we just we just wrapped it all in. And that was uh, the local school boards were banning um, their old buildings that they weren't using anymore from being used by charter schools. They would put these deed restrictions on there, and the deed restrictions say that you could not use this building for the purposes of creating a gun store, a liquor store, a pornography store, or a charter school. Mm. And so you have these vacant, abandoned buildings throughout the St. Louis area that very well could be used for schooling, but aren't because of these uh, unnecessary deed restrictions. So I'm going to play a clip from one of your colleagues, State Representative Rachel Prouty. She's a Democrat from Ferguson. She has a pretty lengthy tenure as an educator. And this was part of her misgivings about the legislation we're talking about, because I believe she's on the same committee as you. She is. So I want to play this and have you respond to it. My major issue with it, because, of course, and this goes back to where I sort of put a pin in it, in Ferguson Florissant um, and the redistricting and closing of schools and the impact that has on the community at large, the lack of local oversight. I'm just not a fan of outside companies coming in from any and everywhere, any and other, any state or what have you, and getting tax, taxpayers' dollars without being accountable to all the taxpayers in a particular school district. Um, so if these taxpaying board, you know, I mean, even though I'm no fan of at-large school districts, at least they're taxpayers. And if they say no, I don't think you should be able to go to some board somewhere that someone who doesn't live in your community appointed, I think it's the governor who appoints these individuals, mm -hmm. can tell you you have to sell a building that your taxpayers paid for. I think what she's getting at, and we kind of talked about it on the show, is I really have strong doubts that a school board is ever going to approve a building to a charter school. Sure. Because I, I, I think that there's general hostility from among most public school districts to charter schools. And what Representative Prouty is saying, by allowing them to appeal to this charter school board, you're essentially removing local oversight over the process. I, don't want, I want you to respond to that. Yeah, and you know, I, I kind of got into this with um, the lobbyist for the NEA when we heard this bill, and I said, under what circumstances 
would you be willing to support charter expansion across the state of Missouri? And they said, you know, we'd be happy to, uh, as long as the local school board controls the, the charter school. And from my perspective, that is just an unreasonable ask. At that point, you no longer have charter schools. What you just have is another traditional public school building. And so it's a farce. They're never willing to come to the table to provide an alternative option uh, for students that's anything different than the status quo. And uh, that's not been working. So I'd like to try something new. Do you think that there is a desire in St. Charles County, which has, I guess, five five or six school districts, they're all pretty good yeah. to have charter schools there? It seems like it, it doesn't really seem like there's a high demand for charter schools in St. Charles County. What, no, what's, what, at, what's your, what's your, maybe I'm wrong. I don't live there. So you're I'm absolutely why. right. Um, I live in Francis Howell School District. It's one of the best school districts in the state. Uh, charter schools are not going to help my district. What they're going to help is the state of Missouri as a whole. We are leaving kids behind in St. Louis City and Kansas City, and they are not getting uh, the education that is uh, anywhere near what, what my folks in St. Charles are getting because we have high property values. That is not an equitable system. That is not a fair system. And it's a system we can fix, but for our own political will to do so. And, and that's why I've sponsored these bills. I believe very firmly in education choice for uh, my entire life. It's part of the reason that I ran for office. And that's why that I've been working so hard to get both charter school expansion and education savings accounts done this year. Where do you think, if this bill passes, where do you think charter schools would end up being set up? Because I have some doubts that they would gravitate to the rural areas just because there's just not a lot of people there. No. I don't really think that charter schools would be set up in where I live, Maplewood, Richmond Heights, because that school district is pretty well established. Where, where, would, where do you think that this bill would effectuate the, the expansion of charter schools if it ends up passing. Sure. Yeah, you have to have a certain population density for this to be viable. And I think that mostly in suburban St. Louis and Kansas City, where you have uh, struggling or failing schools is where you'll see most of the charter schools pop up. So let's get to the fun part, initiative petitions. I have really found that there are few issues this session that have evoked more emotion one side or the other sure. than the initiative petition process. So your bill is raising the threshold for constitutional amendment. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, a lot of states across the country set a pretty high bar before they change their state constitution. Right now, ours is only at 50 percent. Uh, I filed a bill that would make it two thirds. Uh, and I think that if you're going to change your, your foundational document, that it should be done with a broad level of public support. Now, this is actually something I brought up with Senator Eric Burleson, because I think that he has proposed somewhat similar of a measure. I know a lot of Republicans are upset about uh, Amendment 1, Clean Missouri, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And there are things in that measure that I think Republicans would want to put back up for a vote and try to repeal, like the redistricting portion. If this ends up passing and you don't end up I, – I, and, I, and I know we're going to get to this in a minute because I think you will probably bring that to voters before something like this. But – if you find something objectionable in the Constitution and you want to repeal it, wouldn't that make it more difficult to do that? Most certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, uh, if my bill were passed and then keep in mind, it would also have to go to the ballot and be voted. Uh, but if that were enacted before we wanted to change anything that, that came about because of Amendment 1, um, then we'd have to reach that 66 percent threshold to do it. What do you think about some of similar bills of raising the signature count? Because I think right now you need a certain amount of signatures in six of the eight 
congressional districts. Some want to make it eight out of eight, sure. which would, I think, make it more difficult to get things on the ballot. What do you think of, of that idea? Well, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of merit in making sure the entire state has a say in uh, any sort of ballot proposition that goes on the ballot. Right now, if you have six to eight congressional districts, uh, keep in mind, you know, the um, uh, Congressional District 1 is pretty much the entirety of the city of St. Louis and nobody else. So um, they could theoretically be left out of a signature gathering petition um, if, uh, if we don't change this. Um, how realistic do you think it is that there's going to be movement on this? Because Obviously, this is kind of in reaction to a number of left of center initiatives that pass, although I wouldn't call medical marijuana left of center. I think a lot of Republicans supported that. So I, 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 I think that that's kind of a misnomer, but certainly clean Missouri, certainly other things as well. But I, I think that there may be some right of center groups that don't like this either because oh. they've used initiative petitions to get things on the ballot, too. What, 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 do, you, what do you think the... The, the pathway is for this particular bill? I think it's going to be tough. Uh, as you mentioned, there are a number of conservatives uh, that want to use ballot propositions to advance some of their ideas. Uh, some will say that we would never have had the Hancock Amendment uh, if we did not have a ballot proposition. We'd never have term limits if we did not have ballot propositions. Uh, and so there's a lot of hesitancy both on the left and the right to um, limit the amount of, of propositions that are out there. And I think um, any sort of ballot proposition reform faces a steep hill in the legislature. Well, let's talk about something that faces a less steep hill, and that is the aforementioned Amendment 1, Clean sure. Missouri. I mentioned that as kind of a windup because I, I think that there's widespread dissatisfaction with Amendment 1 among Republicans. And I think, if, I think if there was a vote taken in the House and Senate today, a, a, a lot of it would be put back on the ballot without any trouble. But, but as we've done in other shows, let's split this into the two sources of consternation, the Sunshine Law part and the redistricting part. The sun, and, I, and I've explained this on other shows. What the Sunshine part of Amendment 1 says is that legislative emails are open records. There was a controversy for about 10 years that uh, where the House and Senate administrators contended that uh, legislative emails were not open records. After Amendment 1, they are. But there's nothing in Amendment 1 that says that you can't restrict legislative emails. That is a statutory thing. And I think that the conflict right now is how far do you go? Like there was something that passed out of the House, which we've talked about on other shows, that restricts not only constituent emails, but also like legislative decision-making, quote unquote. Sure. Um, what was kind of the mindset about where Republicans went on that, because it's obviously caused a lot of controversy among reporters and also the general public. My position has always been this, and that is I do not care if folks want to sunshine and read my emails. I do care if they want to read my constituents' emails to me, because I have constituents that reach out to me for a number of very personal reasons, things that are going on in their family, their life, their job, things that uh, their political positions that may be unpopular with their employer or with their neighborhood. Um, I want to make sure that those are not made uh, publicly disclosed. And, and so I think that there needs to be adequate protections for constituent privacy. Uh, in any uh, sunshining of, of a legislator's emails. I also think that there's a lot of merit to having a deliberative process exemption for uh, 
things that the conversations that legislators have between one another. And if you believe that our society has become too partisan and that uh, there's no real compromise that happens in the legislature, uh, what happens when you make the off-the-record conversations that legislators have between one another publicly available? And I think that everybody retreats back into their outward persona, their, um, their public image of uh, intensely partisan and um, at one another's throats. And I don't think that that really benefits civil discourse, and I don't think it benefits compromise in the legislature. So I think that much like in the federal government, where FOIA has a um, deliberative process exemption and they have a constituent privacy exemption, uh, I think that our, our laws should mirror that. Let's, let's and, and, I, and I've mentioned this in other shows, I don't think reporters are unbiased observers here. I think in general, we advocate toward being able to get as much information as possible. So sure. I think I think we have to acknowledge that's your job. That's our job. And I think we have to acknowledge that there is I don't want to say a bias, but you can call it a bias. I don't care because I, I, I think that we have to be upfront about this. Right. So for the constituent part, and I've said this before, I don't really want to read your constituent emails between actual everyday citizens and you. Like why would I write an article about that? There's no sure. news value. There's also like journalistic ethics parts about like, you know, printing something with printing something of a regular person that's not a public figure. But how do you define constituent? Because I think if it's not defined enough, especially let's say a lobbyist lives in your district, sure. that could be in that net. And I, I am not for closing records of you conversing with a lobbyist or a special interest group that wants you to do something. No, that's, that's totally fair. And it, it's a tough question, but I think the answer is if you're being paid to advocate to the legislator a particular policy position, then that should be sunshineable. If you're just, you know, a regular guy on the street that wants to contact their state representative, then I think that should be private. I think, though, that you could make an argument that if you're, say, a business owner that's asking you about something or asking you to change law about something, um, would that fall into that category? Because I could yeah. also see that uh, a lot of Republicans saying that that should be private, too, because they're constituents or something like that. You know, and I'm willing to bite the bullet on that one. I think that that should be private. Uh, I, I think that, you know, there are small business owners in my district and uh, they have concerns at, at, about policy and they're a part of our community, too. And uh, I don't think that necessarily their public uh, their positions on, on issues should be made publicly disclosed, because just as I'm interested in protecting the employee who maybe have a, an opinion that's unpopular with his employer. Sometimes employers have uh, opinions that are unpopular with their employees, and I don't think that they should be chilled from uh, contacting their legislator about those under fear that it could end up in the Post-Dispatch. Now, going to the deliberative process, and you kind of mentioned your, your reasoning for that. Um, I just don't see that type of conversation and discourse to be as, as sensitive as constituent information. And I'm really having a hard time figuring out, like, how it reaches that same level as, like, Citizen X writing to you. Like, you talking to another legislator, even though I understand what you're saying, and I'm fully cognizant that if you don't leave that unexempted, that a lot of you are not going to send emails and you're probably just going to talk face to face. Sure. We got to be just honest about that because that's what happens in the executive branch. It's not. It just doesn't strike me as 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 sensitive as say like somebody writing to you about a health, pro, like a Medicaid issue or a, a a business owner asking you about it. So, 
Wh why do you think that should reach the same threshold? I, I'm, I'm curious to hear that. So um, I, it's most certainly true that most legislators just talk to each other one-on-one, -on -one, but occasionally there are discussions within the caucus, and those um, discussions can happen over email, and they can be very personal, uh, and they can be um, a lot of people sharing their own life experience uh, that they may not want to share with the public at large, but they may want to share uh, within their caucus. And, uh, you know, when you're in a legislature, uh, you, you start, the, the folks that you're serving with tend to become like family to you. And uh, sometimes families fight and sometimes uh, families share things between each other that uh, aren't great to, to put out for, for public consumption. And so I think that sometimes there are internal caucus discussions uh, that it is meritorious to consider private. Um, but the, I agree, once we start getting into the realm of taking uh, outward policy action, all that needs to be public, and you, you need to find a way to, to, um, to, to put a line bet between those. Let's talk about what I think is really driving the upsetness over Amendment 1, and that's the changes to the state legislative redistricting. Um, as I said, kind of in the outset of this conversation, I have not found any Republican that's currently serving in the legislature that likes the new redistricting system. I found a lot of Democrats that don't like it either. Sure. So I, I don't really see much drama here. I think this is going to be put back on the ballot. I think there's two questions. What it's going to look like, like what are you actually going to do? Are you just going to revert back to the old system? Are you going to make changes to the new system? And whether how many Democrats are going to join you? That's really the only suspense right. here. So let's go with number one. Is it still kind of an internal debate about what it's actually going to look like, what you're actually going to put back on the ballot? Or have, you, has, have Republicans in the House come up with some sort of idea of what they're going to do on this issue? You know, um, I'm not aware of any uh, hard proposal that's that's been put forward yet. There's been a lot of informal discussions about what folks would like to see happen with their redistricting. And I would say that the, the majority consensus opinion is that what Missouri had before was working. It was something that a lot of other states were going to adopt. And that was you have a bipartisan commission that draws the lines. If they can't agree, it goes to the appellate courts, hardly a bastion of conservatism, by the way. And they draw the final lines for everybody to use based on contiguous and compact districts that make sense for communities of interest. I think the reason why I bring up the Democrats here is, again, you don't need any Democrats to do this. But I think that Republicans want to avoid a situation where the only people that are voting to put this back on the ballot are Republicans, because you're going to get headlines like Republicans trying to repeal Amendment 1. Sure. I think if you have Democrats with you, it kind of, I don't want to say muddies the water, but says it's kind of bipartisan, basically. Because as we talked about on, on the Representative Prouty show, there's a pretty sizable contingent of the black political community in St. Louis, especially, and in Kansas City, that does not like clean Missouri sure. and that did not support it. So... Has there been much engagement to African-American legislators to um, kind of be part of the process of what actually is part of this proposal? Um, because I, I do think that there is an interest in Republicans making sure that it's not only Republicans putting this on the ballot. You know, because there isn't a, a hard proposal that, that's under debate right now, I would say no. But I will say that there are a lot of informal conversations that happen between legislators. Uh, I'll say that uh, some of my favorite people in the legislature, 
are uh, members of the Black Caucus, and uh, we spend a lot of time talking about policy and issues. Uh, we have a lot of overlap between my ideology and uh, theirs. Uh, and so I think this is one of those areas of um, bipartisan interest, and I think that there, if there is a, uh, an, a fix to redistricting that comes through the legislature, that it will include some support from that community. And this is the, the question I always bring up on this topic, because I understand the reasoning, but I could also see a scenario where you put something back on the ballot that reverts back to the old redistricting system and it just fails just sure. because people are like, well, we just voted on this. Why are we voting on it again? We like the new system better. Like, I, I could definitely see that outcome happening. And then all of what we're talking about is kind of just a philosophical exercise <laughs> until, until it happens. Like, how confident are you that voters are actually going to go back to the old system? Because even if we discuss the pros and cons of it, I, I think that there may just be kind of a philosophical aversion to, you know, essentially reversing something that the voters approve. What, sure. what, what's your thought on that? Now, I'll tell you that um, in my conversations with just folks on the street, uh, if you explain the, the redistricting changes to them, they tend to prefer the old version. And uh, that's not just anecdotal evidence. Uh, United for Missouri commissioned a pretty extensive poll uh, testing the various versions of uh, redistricting and found broad bipartisan support for returning to our traditional form of redistricting in the state of Missouri. And so I think that the, that our old way is um, a very palatable and marketable way of uh, Doing drawing districts, and I think it could be electorally successful if we put it back on the ballot. Do you think it'll be put on the ba back on the ballot this year or next year? Well, I think um, it, it it'll be put on the ballot next year, regardless of whether we pass it this year. That's what I mean. The, are you going to are you going to pass something in 2019, sure. which would give you more time to get the money and organization to pass this? Because that was a big problem. I mean. Whether or not you like clean Missouri or not, the anti-side was anemic, and I think the results speak for themselves. So I think that there is kind of a, 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 a reasoning of going this year so you can get the money and support needed. But I think on the other hand, you, you would also have more time for the anti-side to organize, right. which is kind of one of the reasons why I think people may pass something in 2020. What, what's your thought on that? You know, um, we're getting pretty late into the session, and I have not seen a uh, viable fix to uh, Amendment 1 proposed yet. Uh, so I would be honestly surprised if it got done this year. I think next year is more likely. But I think you'll probably see something introduced this year uh, and debated and probably come back next year. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time before you head to Jefferson City. I real I appreciate talking about all these topics, especially some we haven't talked about before, like internet sales tax. So sure. I really appreciate it. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? At PHL Christo is my Twitter. I have one of the more exciting Twitters in the Missouri uh, legislature and would be happy to have some more followers. All right. Follow him today. Until next time, so long. Mm -hmm.